All these things that appear quote unquote new, of course, have these much longer histories and aren't new. Now it seems like people are talking about white supremacy in a way that they weren't five, 10 years ago. Hi, Allison. Hi, Brittany. So today we are going to talk about your book, Media and the Affective Life of Slavery, which I'm very excited about because I've kind of seen it from its earliest days to now it's in print. And part of that is because we have had such a long intellectual friendship. And so I thought we could start by introducing ourselves and then kind of talk about our friendship meet cute um, before I make you give the elevator pitch of the book. <laughs> um, so why don't you tell our listeners or listener uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, about yourself? Hi, I'm Allison Page. I am an assistant professor of media studies at Old Dominion University, both in the Institute for the Humanities and the Department of Communication and Theater Arts. Uh, my work is primarily on race and contemporary media culture. Um, I also do feminist media and cultural studies, and I uh, am, have a kind of side interest in labor and, and digital media. I'm Brittany Farr. I am very recently an assistant professor of law at NYU Law School. So I have a law degree, but like Allison, have a PhD in communication, but from USC. I write about racial violence and the ways that it intersects and interacts with doctrines of contract law, property law, and tort law. Happy to talk about what a tort is, if anyone wants to know. <laughs> But in my PhD days was writing more about the Moynihan Report and representations of Black women. And so Allison and I have a lot of overlapping intellectual interests, which is kind of how we met uh, at the American Studies Association Conference in Los Angeles. I was living in Los Angeles at the time. I don't remember the year. I think ASA was in LA in 2015. I was having a coffee with Brittany's advisor, Sarah Benny Weiser. And Sarah, I remember, was like, oh, is it okay if my PhD student, Brittany, comes along? And at the time, I was like, oh, sure, okay. You know, I was like, I think back at it. I'm sure you were annoyed, too. <laughs> I was just trying. I needed to ask Sarah something, and I was like, I don't know who this woman is. I'm just going to crash her meeting. Like, I have to take up Sarah's time. <laughs> so. I just love this so much, because then when we – I remember we all had coffee, and then Sarah had to leave. And you and I – I have such a clear memory of this. We were outside. Mm -hmm. Somehow, Sadia Hartman came up. I think I was saying something about scenes of subjection, and you're like, oh, I love that book. And I was like – oh, wow, this is amazing. Because I, I felt some intellectual loneliness, I think, around the mm -hmm. kinds of conversations I was interested in. And so I was so excited that you were also in a comm program and really wanting to think through these questions. Oh, my gosh, Sidia Hartman. I know. that's We both sort of had that reaction. And then you said, as often happens at conferences, you're like, oh, let's do like a reading group together or exchange writing. And every other time I've had that conversation, nothing has come of it. <laughs> But we actually, this is like well before the pandemic, like met on Skype and read books. Maybe some of the only books I've read cover to cover. I know. <laughs> I know. Um, many of them are cited in Media and the Affective Life of Slavery, which also feels very special because we read them together. Um, and then we started exchanging writing. And then somehow it went from, you know, a more professional friendship to really just being besties. We applied to conferences together to hang out because we lived on opposite sides of the country, went to said conferences, skipped most of the conferences. 
if any grad students are listening, don't do that. <laughs> Go it's to the fine. It's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, so why don't you give us a two to three sentence description of the book? An impossible task, but. Yes. Oh my gosh. No, I should have this memorized by now. But um, <laughs> in Media and the Affective Life of Slavery, I look at US media about the history of slavery from the 1960s to the present to think through how media instructs viewers um, how to act and feel in accordance with new racial norms created for an era defined by the supposed end of legal racism. And I can talk about this a little bit more when we get into official anti-racism. I look at a range of texts in the book. Um, I look at an educational video game about slavery. I look at educational curricula developed around the miniseries roots to think through and to argue that visual culture works through emotion, which shapes and manages uh, racialized subjectivity. So I wanted to start actually with this idea of official anti-racism, because when you start the book, you kind of say that this is the backdrop that all of these dynamics that I'm writing about are kind of happening against. And it's different from what came before in terms of the ways that people were thinking and talking about race. And it happens toward the end of World War II. And in the book, you say it's when, quote, it became less acceptable to be openly racist, which is really interesting also to read now in 2022. So given that this is such a foundational backdrop to what you're talking about in the book, could you just tell us a little bit more about the shift toward official anti-racism? What does that actually mean and encompass? Because obviously it doesn't mean that people stopped being racist. Um, and kind of how this sets the stage for the the relationship between race, media, and feelings that you describe throughout the rest of the book. So officially anti-racism um, is an idea developed by Jody Malamed in her really excellent book, uh, Represent and Destroy, which I think is a Minnesota Press book, little plug. And this was really foundational, this idea in her book, to how I began thinking about race during this time period, during the kind of post-war moment where overt white supremacy becomes residual. So we have all of these Cold War anxieties happening in this time period where there's this kind of glaring paradox, right? Where there's the huge, obviously, racial inequality at home, while the U.S. is also espousing all of this anti-Soviet Union rhetoric that's positioning the U.S. as open and free in contrast to this ostensibly closed and communist form of governance. So official anti-racism with Malamed, and she looks at um, literature, actually. So I felt like literature is a cultural technology um, producing racialized subjectivity. But one of the things her book is doing here is really challenging progress narratives about you know, this racial break in this post-war era where there's just, you know, enormous amount of change happening around race, not just in terms of the Cold War, but also decolonialization and sort of global social movements to contest racism, white supremacy, colonialism, right? In this book, she has this idea that we see the state, the U.S. university and capital incorporating anti-racist discourse as this way to basically modify white supremacy in a new era where racism becomes covert rather than overt. It becomes, you know, as I, as I write, less acceptable to be openly racist. And certainly, yeah, we can talk about this idea in relation to our current moment. But I think I was really compelled by this in relation to a lot of the media culture and specifically television of the 1960s and the way that it was thinking through and talking about race and trying to have these ideas of, okay, look, we're anti-racism, but it's a very sort of surfacey, obviously, right? Kind of anti-racism that isn't doing anything to address material inequality in any, any sense. So I think in terms of 
the book, I really am so grateful for her excellent work and thinking about what does it mean when anti-racism is both sort of defanged from, again, like I said, this material critique or this idea of resource redistribution to, oh, we just want to appear or feel anti-racist. And so that's where I really started thinking about how does emotion come into play here? I will say when I was thinking about this podcast, I looked back one of my very first, I think it was my first publication was in an online journal. It was a book review of Represent and Destroy. And I just reread it to be like, oh yeah, let me kind of just refresh. And it was really amazing to see, I think there were so many of the seeds of this book in that review where I was like, I love what Mohammed does here. I wonder how we might make sense of these ideas in relation to feeling and to media culture and media text and media as a cultural technology. And, and I look back at that now and I'm like, oh, there it was. It was like a little roadmap I wasn't able to see at the time. That'll be very exciting for the grad student 100 years from now who's writing about uh, pages, writings, and theories, and like, we see the earliest seeds of this idea in this like book review, which we think is their first, her first publication. Uh, and then they'll find this recording, maybe if they can listen to <laughs> right, it, uh, with right. their antique technology and confirm. But so I want to just return to something you said about this moment, this shift toward official anti-racism being a moment when overt white supremacy is becoming residual, especially since now it seems like people are talking about white supremacy in a way that they weren't five, 10 years ago and identifying things as white supremacist in a way that I actually have found surprising. At a law school where I was a fellow, the dean put in an email to the entire law school kind of denouncing white supremacy, which is not something that I would have expected from, you know, an institutional actor in that way, but it has become more like politically acceptable and salient to do that. And so I'm curious, you started writing this book in what, 2014, 13, yeah. Yeah, 12, yeah, yeah, yeah. a long time ago? <laughs> A long time ago, Obama was still president. People were still talking about post-race and, you know, we have a black president, we've solved racism, things like that. And obviously, Trumpism was kind of nascent, but I don't think any of us had any idea kind of what was on the horizon. And I experienced this when I look back at my own dissertation, reading it and the way that I write about race, it's a little bit like watching a horror movie. Yes. And you see someone and you're yes. like, don't go in that room. Oh my God, yes. <laughs> she has no idea what's coming. And so, but you, you know, I get to leave my dissertation on a shelf and you had to revise it into a book. And so I would love to hear more about how this shift in the national conversation around race and politics, comfort with sort of pushing back on the incorporation of anti-racist discourse, people being le like more comfortable with not feeling anti-racist. Right. <laughs> negatives in there. So Anything that you could say about, you know, how your thinking has changed or how did you have, you know, a relatively stable text as all of these things are kind of swirling around it? I think there's two parts to that. So first, I thought about this a lot because as I was revising my, what had been the fifth chapter of my dissertation was about the website and app Slavery Footprint. And when Slavery Footprint came out, it was in the Obama era. The Obama administration had funded it, right? It was this partnership with the State Department. And so when I was writing that chapter as part of the dissertation, so much of it was really about a lot of the discourse that anti-trafficking movements use just totally expunge race, right? Where it's, it's this really kind of colorblind, post-racial. I mean, really, Slaver Footprint makes that very explicit when they're like, 
Lincoln declared the slaves free. Like this is a quote from their site. And now this is a myth, right? We actually have more slavery today than we ever did. And in the book, I talk about how this is part of continuing anti-Blackness, where you can see issues of white supremacy, even though they're not articulated like that, over there, never at home, right? And and the anti-trafficking movement um, has all sorts of issues. But as I was starting to revise, it's true, I had just moved to Virginia. Charlottesville just happened, right? Like this, I think all of the context of that moment really did inform the revision from the dissertation to the book. Like I was in Charlottesville when that white supremacist rally happened. The tiki torches. Yeah, exactly. Right. That was like my introduction to Virginia. I mean, I know you and I have talked about this a lot, that all these things that appear quote unquote new, of course, have these much longer histories and aren't new and we can complicate this a lot. But I do think in terms of discursive formations that we are seeing clearly like post-racialism is residual. I mean, I talk about this a lot with my students who are always like, "Uh, are you kidding? Like, (laughs) no, of course we don't live in a post-race world. And I think that's so, so different, right? Yeah, actually, though, I want to, so this just made me think of some of the Supreme Court decisions that have come out recently in the last decade or so, you know, the Shelby County, things that are undoing a lot of important parts of the Civil Rights Act and civil rights movement that happened. Part of how the Supreme Court justifies this is by saying that we don't need these things anymore because yes, we're not yes. America's not racist. So there's this weird tension and kind of hypocrisy of, I don't know, maybe it's only the Supreme Court that's writing things that say like America's not racist anymore and the rest of us are kind of like, well, we don't know. But some very powerful people are still making that argument. Yes. Yeah. And I think that's such a good point. And it's so breathtaking to see that hand in hand with both the revision that I think Trumpism, I don't want to say like, oh my God, this is so surprising. It's so new. Like, where did all these, you know, overt racists come from? But I was thinking this morning about how, at least in terms of like anti-racist kind of discourse, I remember when I was an undergrad and the kind of anti-racist activism I was doing, so much of the the language around it was really about structural critique. And I think that was important, of course, because we want to get away from, for all sorts of obvious reasons, but just, you know, the individual as the site of racism. And I think about this a lot with the book because in my first chapter, you know, these TV documentaries were really about sort of like changing hearts and minds of white people, but just in like a very surfacey, not too deep of a way. And that will prevent you from having to like open up your neighborhood, right, to black people living there. One of the things I, I think we see now with Trumpism and its rises is that there's more room to think about, oh, how does how does it happen on an interpersonal level? Too? Right. Like we need to kind of hold both when we're talking about anti-racism. And I think with what you're saying in terms of the Supreme Court, it's just this really fascinating and horrifying, frankly, moment of this gutting of these civil rights protections in the name of, okay, we don't need, it's irrelevant now, but also then this revision in this uptake by those on the the far right, right, of saying, no, we're being oppressed. So like I was looking at the language of the Stop Woke Act in Florida and Ron DeSantis's team is like, we're stopping white supremacy. Like they frame it so much. Yeah. Through, okay. If you're talking and and we can get into this more too, because so much of it is also articulated through feelings. Like we don't want people to feel, they use the terms guilt and anguish. So making white people feel guilty is white supremacist. Right. Right. Like it's, it's really the like shit. I mean, that's at least as far as I can understand. 
So that's why I think it's so fascinating because yeah. we have this total denial, like race, we don't need to think about race anymore by several Supreme Court justices that Trump appointed. And also Trumpism saying, no, 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 no. White people are being so oppressed, right? Like we need to sort of prevent this, this racism against white people. And of course, this reverse racism claim has such a much longer history. Again, I want to be very, very clear about that. But I do think in this moment, we're seeing it in, in kind of different ways, I would say. I want to put a pin because we've been trying to figure out what it, we would co-author together. I want to put a pin in the human trafficking thing because, and so I'm sure I've talked to you about this and I've made you read drafts of this article that talks about Westlaw, which is the main, one of the main ways that lawyers find cases. So not just in legal academics, but practicing lawyers. And I didn't know it existed until I got to law school. And part of why I went to law school was because I couldn't figure out how to find cases. And it's behind a massive paywall. It's very expensive. And sometimes state, that's the only way you can find cases. So everybody uses Westlaw. It's the norm. And because I do research on slavery, they have kind of organized things into, they call them keynotes, but they're just like headings and subheadings of, of topics, of legal topics. So you would have like a property heading and then real estate and like water rights or whatever goes under there. And you can search things by keynotes. And so there used to just be a slavery keynote, right? A freestanding slavery keynote, which is intense in its own way. And I would go there and click around and find cases. And then, I don't know, a year, two years ago, it disappeared. <laughs> it's like, where did the slavery keynote go? Guess where it ended up? In the human trafficking, uh, as a subheading under human trafficking. And I just keep telling people because in the hopes that somebody will write about it, but I don't know that it's happened yet. I, I need to double check and make sure, but I just, it's just kind of mind boggling to me because, and I'm sure it wasn't done with ill intent. You know, there are people who work at Westlaw and are thinking, okay, human trafficking is a big area of law. You know, let's put that there. But for, you know, if you yes. know anything about that discourse, it's kind right. of contentious to put U.S. chattel slavery under human trafficking. It's like, if you put it anywhere, put it under property. It's like, that's the laws that it's relevant to. Right. That people would notice that and be up in arms. Anyway, so as you were revising and, you know, maybe parts of the dissertation that were relevant about the Obama administration's involvement in the slavery but maybe was less, were there kind of texts that you decided to include that weren't in the original version or did you keep all of the, the same texts? No, that's a good question. The dissertation had five chapters and the book has four plus the intro and the conclusion. Oh, actually, let me interrupt you and ask you to just describe the ones that are in the book and then tell me which ones are, are oh, different. Yes, yes or... good. Okay, so in the book, I, I had, my introduction to the dissertation had been started in a very different way. So the book I get to work through Azzy Dungy's amazing Ask a Slave. She's a comedian and an actor and this YouTube web series that she did. So she had been herself an actor at one of these like living history museums, right? And so she basically is drawing on her experience of the racist and sort of horrific things people asked her while she was playing an enslaved person, like, what do you do for fun? Or where do you send your kids to school, right? So I start the book by thinking through, because I really wanted to center, not just have it be all of these kind of hegemonic uses of the history of slavery for essentially like nefarious ends, but Black feminist contestation of that. And so I start with Azzy Dungy. I conclude with Carol Walker and her stunning piece in audience, the uh, short film that she made, or short video, I should say, piece, in response to a subtlety, the huge sugar sphinx that she installed at the former Domino uh, factory in Brooklyn. 
And I had really wanted to write about that. So I was like, okay, great. I have these spaces. These are these texts that sort of came out as I was wrapping up the dissertation. And, you know, you have to draw lines somewhere. Also, when I was in Virginia, I made this friend, Kanisha, who's a playwright. And she and I were talking. I can't remember how this came up, but we were talking about Lorraine Hansberry and how she had written a screenplay uh, for television called The Drinking Gourd about the history of slavery. And this was in 1959 and it was never aired uh, because it was considered, uh, and this is like, the quote is is just kind of amazing, like too much of a hot potato for television. Um, and in part, it was because of how it portrayed the relationship between whiteness and blackness. So it, like we can think about how Roots obviously represents whiteness or sort of portrays its white characters, but clearly like Lorraine Hansberry has a much richer, much more complex understanding of the inextricability of whiteness and blackness and as racial formations in relation to to slavery in this era she's writing about. So I wanted to do some work on that. So I was able to do some archival research at the Schomburg and find out by the time this all was coming, the the sort of debates with media industry people and the executor of Hansberry's estate, this was posthumous. There was just a lot, like this trail of, you know, this correspondence where they're sort of debating like why they can't air it. And so that I knew I was also like, this is this really amazing kind of text, given that if we think about, so like Roots, for instance, was Alex Haley's, and I say this in the book, like his, you know, really sort of masculinist hero narrative. He, in the archival work I did at USC, you could see all of his sort of defense of, you know, what we would call like very sort of liberal or even like moderate positions in relation to race and these potentially richer and non-masculinist, almost, you know, thinking about gender in a very different way, narratives were sort of pushed aside, right? Like Lorraine Hansberry was literally, her screenplay never, it was never developed and never aired. So the dissertation was five chapters. I had a chapter on these two made for TV, basically like after school specials Mm -hmm. about I read that. I don't, do you rem- you remember that? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. So both of them feature quote unquote like unruly young black men. They're like listening to rap and you know their clothing. This was I think they were made in the late eighties, early nineties. So clearly part of this anxiety about you know blackness and youth as was revived in in twenty sixteen, like Hillary Clinton calling them super predators, right? So it was really of this particular moment where they get sent back to the antebellum era to learn lessons about how to better appreciate their contemporary freedoms. I mean, it's just like, why? Why do we keep making movies where we send Black people back to slavery? Oh my gosh. It's, yeah, it's, and it wasn't like, you know, obviously Octavia Butler. Yes, and Sankofa, which everybody writes about, but. Right, yeah, right, yeah, 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 Sankofa, yeah, totally. So when I was thinking about the shift from the dissertation to the book, it did become very clear. As soon as I finished the dissertation, I was defending it. I was like, wait, this whole thing is about feelings. And I, you know, I kind of gestured towards it in the dissertation, but it really, I do think there's a way in which once you finish something, then you can see like, oh, what it's actually about. And yeah, well, and just to say your dissertation was framed around pedagogy. Yeah. And citizenship, right? And sort of like cultural citizenship. And I think that chapter, although I liked it, and at some points I was like, maybe I should turn that into like a freestanding article. It kind of goes along with what you and I have talked about, where we're both really interested in texts that are not so obvious 
like, yes, of course, this is like extremely racist and terrible. And we can like, yes, situate it in governmentality in terms of this kind of emerging multiculturalism, emerging neoliberalism, like you need to behave differently. But I kind of felt like that text didn't present itself as progressive in the way that these other texts that I'm looking at or interested in did. And I I think that is most compelling to me because I, I do want to kind of unpack the things that we think of as quote unquote good. I'm curious if your approach to the things that you choose to write about has changed from early graduate school days to now. I mean, mine certainly has a fair amount. I think my approach to what I'm thinking about now, yeah, is really different. I I mean, this probably sounds so trite, but like reductive understanding of things as like good or bad or like radical or not. And now I'm much more interested in the complexity of things. I mean, I think a lot about one of my mentors, Rod Ferguson, was always so great about being interested in how power, power is repressive, of course, but also like power is seductive. And it says, you know, yes too, right? Not just no. And how we're part of that, like how you can kind of get interpolated into that. And I I want to sort of explore those types of things rather than like, like against a politics purity method where you're like, I'm just going to choose this and I can like tear it apart. You know, I'm much more interested in complexity, I think, in a different way. Totally. I mean, yes, I think I started out writing things that are like, this is good or this is bad and yes. this is racist or this is not. And yes. my uh, advisors kind of pushed me to be a bit more complicated. And I have such a clear memory of, in my qual's defense, Kara Keeling asking me something. I had written a syllabus on like feminist something or other. And one of the weeks was divided into like real violence versus represented violence. Oh, and wow. Kara asked uh, what's sort of what's the difference and why do you have this distinction are you making this distinction just to trouble it for the students and can we understand these things that separately and that really blew my mind yeah, <laughs> in a way yeah. that I think I'm still making sense of I see my students really grapple with that kind of question too I think if you come from a particular maybe like activist bent or like a political frame, you know, where it is really tempting to be like, well, this is real and this is not. I see that with my students now when things are so harrowing in so many ways for them. And they're like, what's the point of doing certain things when we have real things to be thinking about, you know, and I'm like, how can we make sense of that? Right. So you mentioned that maybe your object choice has changed over time and you're really feeling it in terms of the next project that you're working on. And I'll say briefly that, you know, the next project is more focused on policing. And I remember when you were first telling me about it, I thought, wow, that seems really different from what you were doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, in the chapter where you are, this is the slavery footprint chapter, which is a website where you can go and discover how many slaves work for you. And they have quote unquote algorithms that calculate that. That is kind of where I see um, the beginnings of this next project. So I'm just going to read this passage before you start talking about it. Um, and you're talking about slavery footprint here. Through their reliance on algorithms and data to uncover what they term, quote, slavery, Made in a Free World, which is the the parent company, uh, Made in a Free World promulgates the notion of the digital as not only neutral and separate from race and capitalism, but as the ideal solution precisely because the technology obscures race. Slavery Footprint produces a form of ethical subjectivity that thinks about and acts against racialized labor arrangements, which are never named as such, through consumption and digital media rather than emotion. Data and algorithms are key sites for the production of race not just reifying existing racial formations, but modifying and constituting them as well. 
Critically, the ongoing datafication of race and racialized bodies constitutes a new racial formation in the 21st century, one that attempts to transcend emotion. So interesting to see this now and to think about sort of everything that we've been talking about, right? Like in the wake of the social movements arising out of the police killings of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and all this explosion of like DEI kind of discourse, which is a, another project I really want to work on at some point, um, the kind of history of DEI in relation to media and also how we understand like what quote unquote diversity means. But I think with this, it's so interesting to see this as I'm, I'm really kind of starting to think about this next project because I was really interested in and did some work with a really amazing student of mine um, who's now getting her PhD in gender studies at Rutgers. Yay. But we were starting to think about policing and emotion and all this discourse of technology as as neutral, which I think really when I was meeting with this student, we were talking a lot about ideas arising from this chapter, you know, where race becoming something we can understand through data and this is so neutral and this is going to take us out of this problem, right, of human bias and human error. And this is actually really a thread that I think kind of appears in some ways throughout the book. Like in chapter one, I talk about in these TV documentaries in the 1960s that are focused on race and slavery geared towards white audiences, there's often this tension between, you know, we're trying to create these feelings of fear and anxiety, right, for white viewers, but also showing data. Like I actually just taught one of the documentaries in one of my classes and it ends with, and I talk about this in the book, Mike Wallace bringing in a statistician to to talk about like how white people are feeling with respect to, this was in the mid 1960s, uh, the civil rights movement. And so there's this tension between data and feelings and sort of them being separated from one another. And as these, like, how do we think about race? How do we, quote unquote, solve the problem of race? That I take this up in chapter two with Roots that was very explicitly like, let's feel our way to the solution. And so I think one of the things that was interesting to me about Slavery Footprint is that it really was like, okay, we're going to just turn everything into that we can solve everything with an algorithm or apps or sort of datafication. Within media studies, there's a lot of really excellent work about the rise of datafication, this kind of larger assemblage of technological solutions to issues. I mean, there's certainly like amazing work and folks at the intersections of environmental studies and and thinking about climate and, and media culture. And there's a lot of really great work that is theorizing predictive policing, the kind of imbrication of policing with these technologies. And so I, I knew that I wanted to work on policing in some ways after I had read Simone Brown's really wonderful book, Dark Matters, which looks at the relationship between Blackness and surveillance in the US. And she sort of talks about, in some ways, like technologies, like runaway slave posters as this sort of tool of, of policing, really kind of communicative tool of policing. What I want to do in this next book is really historicize this because so often so much of the work on technology and, and technology and race is really contemporary, which is critical, right? We need to think about all the ways that these technologies that really rely on this discourse of neutrality are, of course, not neutral, right? And then the ways that they are reinscribing racism and 
all of this kind of racial categorization in the name of neutrality. But I want to look at the much kind of longer history of that. And this gets us back to some of the kind of quotidian objects that you and I have talked about, where I'm hoping that when I get to spend some time in the archive, I'll be able to see, you know, how media technologies uh, in particular were talked about at this kind of moment of ascendance in terms of policing. So actually in the 1960s, in 1967, Johnson was really obsessed with um, like commissions and reports. And so there was a commission on policing that had a whole chapter devoted to how can we use information technology, this is the term they use, to, again, and this is their language, to improve policing, right? So there's this really early interest that I think is super fascinating. And I also really want to focus on how highly policed communities in this time were really pushing back against and contesting this emergence of technology, because we do really see this push, right, for more high-tech policing. I mean, certainly this is really ubiquitous today, like more cameras. You know, if we use algorithms, we're going to be able to sort of get around this issue rather than, of course, that's not the root issue of, of policing and racism. But I want to kind of spend time thinking about how did this discourse that's now so normalized, where this, this moment, how did it kind of become common sense? And, and where did that sort of happen? I had this research assistant this summer do all this work going through all of these papers that the Schomburg had sent me through these activist groups based in New York. I'm working on the NYPD because it's the largest police force in the U.S. and, and huge in the world and a really early kind of proponent of high-tech policing. Was it as diverse in the 60s as it is now? You know what's so interesting is actually when I was able to get to the archive I watched this fascinating recruitment video for the NYPD that was, I want to say like mid-70s, and it featured all sorts of Black police officers and, and women, like white women police officers, police officers of, of color, like it was sort of multiracial, where it was like, this is what I got from the NYPD, you know, being a police officer has allowed me to do blah, blah, blah. And they had a little section on like, I've learned computer skills, right? Like yeah, it was yeah. really trying to recruit people through the the, the tech it was super interesting. I watched it like four times. I was just like, ah, this is very rich text. I really, I just need to carve out some time because she really had gone through all of this material. I'm also, I had another research assistant last year look at a lot of institutional stuff, like all the, these police journals called Law Enforcement News and the way that she looked at every issue from the 70s, which is amazing. Also named Brittany. She pulled out all of the parts where they were sort of talking about technology, where they were talking about wanting to have more funding for this, how this would sort of help policing in you know, these ways. You know, I have to, again, find some time to really sit down with that. But I do find myself more and more really wanting to kind of think through what you and I talk about as like the mundane in relation to how this gets so normalized and becomes such a kind of hegemonic idea. Yeah. I mean, I love the idea of taking something boring and making it interesting. That's like, Yeah. Because often, I mean, what, like power so banal, you know, and it's, right. it's so important right. to think through that. Yeah, exactly. I think that's actually something that I kind of witnessed when I lived in LA because I was writing so much about representation and then seeing behind the scenes how stuff got made and how it was all those little decisions, mostly born of like lack of time or money that resulted in these upsetting representations. Uh, it's like, it's little things, you know? So you've talked a lot about archives and loving the archives and going to archives, needing to go to archives. Do you consider yourself a historian? Like what is your relationship to the discipline of history? 
which is maybe not going to be interesting for many people, but is particularly interesting to me because I recently had to answer a lot of questions about, you know, am I a historian or not? You are a legal historian. I am a historian. That's the official answer. So I'm sure real historians would be like, you are absolutely not a historian (laughs) to me. Well, I think my advisor, Laureolette, um, does a ton of historical work. She really instilled in me a kind of respect for the archives, right? And this this chance to kind of get to dig through. It's almost like I, I think as a, on a personal note, like I love like thrifting. So it's almost like thrifting through, you know, you just get to sift through a bunch of old stuff. We've talked a lot about interdisciplinarity with one another. And I, I love how I was able, my training was very interdisciplinary. I think that produces really rich work. That's partly why I wanted to be on Minnesota, because I think Minnesota publishes so much theoretically important and rich and interdisciplinary work, and it really values that, which really aligns with how I like to think about scholarship and and sort of my methods. Let me say it this way. I looked at historians like Stephanie Smallwood, who I think is amazing in, you know, the kind of archival work that she does, really, really detailed, right, beautiful, rich, but then the reading of it and the theoretical work that she produces from the archival research, which I think is possibly unusual for some in history as a discipline. I think Stephanie Smallwood is a wonderful example of, and I think your work is a wonderful example of. Thank you. Thank you. Which you can soon read in the UCLA Law Review. Yay! Good plug! <laughs> I'm going to separate you out because you are a historian and we need to like really say, you know, but... It doesn't um, matter now, I have a job. Yeah, yeah, that, great, great, yeah. No, I mean, I think we're pointing to the difficulty of disciplinarity and sort of fitting yourself into these boxes or making yourself legible in order to to get a job or to, you know, know what conversations you're speaking to. And that's why I think interdisciplinarity is so important to me because I want to be able to be in several conversations. And that kind of work has been so meaningful to my own thinking. In terms of historical stuff, I I do tend to, like, I know you and I have talked a lot about method. I have to teach a lot of methods courses at ODU, which has really transformed my relationship to thinking about method. Because I used to be like, I don't know, I just read. Like, what do I do? What you know? It's hard for I think people who are not historians or who are not ethnographers or who not you know have these like very clear cut methods. I mean, what are historians doing other than reading? Yeah, they read a lot, but they can really, I, you know, like having the sexiness of the archival work, right? right? Yeah, like, sure. I don't who other than us would call that sexy, but you know. I know. It's, it is very legible, right, when you're trying to describe, like my colleague who's a TV study scholar, he's like, I'm never going to get external funding because no one's ever going to be like, yeah, I need to pay you to watch TV, right? Like, which is obviously a gross reduction and oversimplification of what he does. Having to teach methods and, and really working on it and thinking about it in relation to this book, I'm like, oh, yeah, okay. I feel much clearer about thinking about the politics of knowledge and sort of how we come to articulate what we know through sort of methodological terms. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, I think our shared approach to history kind of goes back to our love of Sadia Hartman, right? Oh, Who yeah. I think of as a historian, but too. is not. Uh, I keep being shocked to discover she is not in a history department. Like, are you sure though? Like, I, I, I'm like, I don't know. I think she's in a history department. Like, she's, she's certainly not. And I think as I was sort of making the shift from communication to legal scholarship um, and figuring out how to make my work legible to legal historians, discovering that there's just I considered myself like pretty familiar with scholarship on the history of slavery, but there's just there's a whole different track of stuff about the history of slavery 
that's being produced by historians compared to what some historians are writing, but also cultural studies and English and film studies. There's a whole separate literature that, yes. and the two of them are not really in conversation with one another. Right. I think for some historians, it's very much the belief that, you know, you can only say something about the past, right? Like you're doing it. You're a historian because you care about history, whereas like you're a historian because you care about the present, right? Like the yes, worst thing you can yes. say to certain historians is like you're a presentist. <laughs> They're like, oh my gosh, how totally. dare you? And I'm like, yeah, uh, yes. of course. Why wouldn't I be? And I think there's a little bit of a generational divide there yeah. too, because you know I have yes. friends who actually have history PhDs who have a much more similar approach to me. Yeah, yeah. I'm thinking of who you're thinking of. I imagine. I think one of the worst things you can probably say to a historian is like, I'm taking a Foucauldian approach. Like I want to, this is a genealogical like history of the present. There's also an attention to power in a way that I think cultural studies can give us that that's why I like to sort of combine scholarship. Because I think you're absolutely right. Like I think about people like the work of like Christina Sharp or like I said, Stephanie Smallwood, probably less so, but certainly like people working on chattel slavery and and questions of representation and performance and cultural technology, right? Like all these conversations that are happening in cultural studies. I can imagine some of the history of slavery books that you're thinking of, they're not in conversation with one another. When one of the early readers of my book was like, here's some other, like Fabiola Glyph's book and maybe Jennifer Morgan's work too, right? Like there's some really great work that I think this is the problem of siloing because then you you miss out on all of this. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know. I thought, you know, I've got a PhD, I'm good. And then discovered just so much stuff I was unaware of and had to read if I wanted to consider myself a historian of slavery. But then on the other hand, you have someone like Walter Johnson, who is a dyed-in-the-world historian, write something like on agency, which I would put more in the camp of the like Christina Sharps. Yes, which was really central to my chapter on games. Especially being in a law school, that article kind of haunts me. Some of this is just the way that our legal system is structured, that you have an individual plaintiff bringing individual claims in front of a court, and students are being trained to be zealous advocates for their clients. And so I think there's a tendency to want to look at history and think about it in terms of agency um, and who has agency and who doesn't have agency. And so because I write about poor Black workers right after the Civil War using the law in ways that people don't expect. One of the ways that many people come to the project is saying, wow, this is incredible that you have like rediscovered this agency mm -hmm. that they have. I don't have a good answer for like how to actually talk about it because also, uh, you know, it's very common in legal scholarship to want to have like a normative takeaway, which other disciplines, nobody wants to do that. Like, don't ask me what could happen. What are you talking about? Get out of here. But the other thing is sort of, you know, is this a positive story of what's happening? Is this a negative story? Is the law doing good here? What should the law have been? All of these questions that I don't have good answers for, but I'm haunted by Right. No, totally. Because how can, like, the frames that we're so trained into seeing in these, like, especially I think in terms of legal work, obviously I'm not, I'm law adjacent now, I think, mm -hmm. given you and my, my more law adjacent. Yeah. <laughs> We've been talking about this a little bit, like racial feelings are everywhere, both in terms of all of this kind of explosion around DEI as a one of the key institutional responses to social movement pushes around anti-Black violence. And so we have that with all this anti 
critical race theory. It's really, it is making me think of Sarah's work on popular misogyny and popular feminism sort of existing in tension at the same time. And so here I think we can see this just intensified anti-critical race theory, this renewed push to clamp down on how the history of slavery in particular is being taught, right? Certainly this extends to all sorts of things. Um, I think I saw something the other day that one school district got rid of like the girls who code, but like some book about coding and girls, which is just really amazing. I mean, just because talking about girls is sexist. Right, totally. So this just this like twisting of social movement language. One of the things I keep coming back to, so in my first chapter, I look at, you know, these television documentaries about race and slavery, and I look at this one and I I don't get to go into it. I talk a little bit about it in the book, but it really has kind of been something that stuck with me where the police were being asked to, this police force, and it was just like a throwaway line in one of the documentaries, but were being asked to undergo training around, I think they used the word like prejudice maybe and discrimination and I have been thinking about that more I just was reading something in American Quarterly about like the history a little bit historicizing diversity work quote-unquote and and in in terms of institutions but I really I want to go back to and try to find some of those training videos because they were mediated right sort of using uh, videos and films to shape behavior and to kind of shape the ways that people think about race in an institutional context context in the service of adhering to new ideas about workplaces and discrimination. And I just keep thinking about this so much. This is like my next next project. Like I know I'm going to do the policing book, you know, but then I, I do really want to think about like this history of diversity discourse, how it gets taken up in terms of media culture. Like I think all the time about the videos that, you know, like at my job that when I started, like you need to watch about like harassment and discrimination. So I'm just curious if you had thoughts about all of the ways that we have all this explosion of DEI initiatives that are also articulated a lot through feelings. There's all this sort of pushback against it, but how this really came to be this kind of institutional response to you know, social movements. I mean, obviously it's maybe the theme of this is low hanging fruit where like an institution can be like, look, we're doing something and we don't actually have to think about um, sort of more material changes or shifts we could be making. I think that some places are thinking of those programs as more material institutional changes. I don't think, you know, implementing different policies like that is necessarily the most superficial thing one could do. It's kind of a, an in-between in terms of what, you know, what would be an effective way of uh, addressing diversity. In a way, it's a little bit like a prehistory of what Jennifer Nash talks about in Black Feminism Reimagined, I think is maybe the title. Little Mad Libs. Um, yeah. Oh, that's what I was going to say. When I was doing my initial like training videos, I had never had to watch active shooter drill videos before and was stunned. Have you? No. Oh, okay. That makes me feel better because I was texting my friend Felipe and he was like, what? You've never seen this? Like, oh, wow. that's a clear media studies paper, right? That it was, I was recording it on my phone. I can send you the, because I was actors acting out an actor shooter wow. drill like, thing. And, you know, you have people fleeing. There's somebody who plays the shooter. 
they're like different chapters to it. So you have to like answer questions after each chapter. And like, there's the one chapter that's like bar the door and then pick up a heavy object and you see everybody doing it and like getting ready to do it. Oh my God. And it, yeah. It's a friend of mine who was at, I think when he was at Northwestern, they got into some, it, it was a bit of a hot potato. Uh, they had they gave too much backstory on the active shooter. And so it was like too immersive and people were really upset oh, and kind wow. of like up and troubled. Anyway, I don't think anyone has actually written about them as media texts. This is not what you're talking about in terms of diversity, but I was just shocked. And like someone has to sit around and think about casting also, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course, the shooter is a white man, which seems like well, one is, I think, accurate and two, right. the most like politically safe thing probably. But then mm -hmm. there were interstitials with Anyway, the whole thing was just, I was shocked uh, <laughs> like, but i can think of comedies that have fake diversity training yeah videos, yeah right there's such a common part of our culture that there's a whole other discourse that is making fun of them on what we do in the shadows i don't know if you're still watching it <laughs> but the, like vampire council's having a meeting and they no! bring they roll a television in and say like hr made us make this video about harassment policies <laughs> and whatever for the vampire council meeting let's and write about that the tv comes on and it's some like grizzled old man and he said it just says do whatever you want there are no rules and then it ends <laughs> and they wheel it away <laughs> like that is just so I now I'm going to like go back on what I said earlier about like maybe it is a bit more of a meaningful change because if there's that level of like cultural critique of them I think it's like everyone kind of agrees even those of us who are really committed to diversity and equality do these things like running in the background and you totally. know clicking the questions and aren't super engaged with it I think there's an interesting kind of corollary maybe with professional responsibility classes, which are things that you have to take in law school. And I wonder if it's something you have to do in medical school, but the PR classes, which there's also a whole like political economy thing there in terms of like many law schools staff them with adjuncts and don't hire in PR. And it's a test that you have to take in order to get barred. You have to like pass a professional responsibility test. And so students are then taught professional responsibility and also somehow in some ways to take a test. And from friends who have like taken the class and the test, they're like, it sort of teaches you that the answer is the like slightly less ethical thing than you think it would be. Yes. Um, but yes, the way that big ideological goals like diversity or inclusion are then operationalized into like legislation and then regulations and then like company policies, I think is a really interesting question. And then like all the way down to the actual like making of the video. Yes. Um, and there's a, not that either of us are like media industry people, but like even just like how, who's making these videos? Yeah. How are they getting made? Like, what are they paying people? How are they casting it? What pool of actors are they drawing from? Yes. Are they are they real actors? Are but I don't. There's right. just. I mean, there's a lot there that I think is really rich and interesting, particularly in the wake of the Breonna Taylor, George Floyd summer, where all of these companies are coming out and committing to diversity and saying, here's all the things that we're going to do. And some of them actually taking time and coming up with really thoughtful mm -hmm. responses. But I think kind of universally, trainings are one of them. Mm -hmm. There's not really a standard for these trainings. 
I really see a connection from some of the themes of the book to these ideas. Yeah, absolutely. In the way that feelings are managed, because it's, it reminds me, especially the clicking through of the programs compared to the watching of the video, it does make me think of your chapter on the video game, right? And who are the actors and sort of where the culpability is coming from for the problems that these videos or programs are seeking to remedy. Yes, yes, you know. totally. Oh, Brittany, I'm so glad we got to talk today. And I'm so glad this is in our besties archive. Yes, I'm very excited to have this. It feels very special. Thank you for asking me to be the one to do it. Oh, the best. Thank you for doing it and for thinking through these things with me. And and I will just say, as by way of conclusion, like Brittany really read every word of this book, like multiple times. She was so central to, to its formation. So I'm so grateful. And including the acknowledgments. I know. <laughs> More than once. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. She workshopped those. So yes, I just, we're endlessly grateful. Best thing to come out of a conference. Yes. The, yeah. All right. Thank you. Thank you. 